got a great show today on, on Democracy with F.P. Wellman. My guest Ryan Buss is going to be joining us in a minute. In the meantime, while everybody gathers, I see some friendly faces gathering again. It's so good to see our, our regular show show listeners and, and friends. Uh, I'm so excited about this episode today. And uh, let's just get things rocking and start talking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to On Democracy with F.P. Wellman on Call-In. If you're listening to us online, I hope you'll download the Call-In app. Join us live to talk about our democracy, how we can all help move the nation forward. It's free. Can't beat free. Uh, our episodes published on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as well. So I hope you'll join us wherever you get your podcast fix. And let's get the show rolling. Man, I I have been saying for a while, you know, there's an old saying that we live in, uh, We it's a good, you, may you live in interesting times, I think, is that right? And so I can certainly say we are living in those times, and I'm so glad, um, I, I'm so glad that you're here joining me to discuss them. I'm your host, Fred Wellman. Uh, the January 6 hearings are rolling along, it's riveting TV. At the same time, we've just heard uh, that the... Uh, that the a, a group of as this past week a group of twenty senators of ten from each party have engineered a legislative framework they're calling it on gun safety that just yesterday what Mitch McConnell himself actually said he would support which is uh, something interesting um, so there's a lot to discuss there and I'm really glad to have a guest on today who can do just that uh, and so it's a very important issue one I'm passionate about if you've known me on Twitter you follow me or you're a friend I talk about gun safety issues for many years I authored a uh, I authored an, a, a, an op-ed many years ago with a group of fellow veterans about how we see the gun safety issues of veteran. We'll probably talk about that, Ryan, uh, but let's get right to it. So I've been following the work, uh, his work for some time. Ryan Bussey has traveled along and, as his bio says on his book, a circuitous path with some 30 years in the gun industry. He's an avid hunter, an outdoorsman, a conservationist, and those are all the things that the firearms industry was built on. He rose to the highest ranks of that rapidly growing, uh, growing multi-billion-dollar firearms industry. But the changing landscape of business pushed him to turn into advocacy and push back against the growing radicalization he watched unfold during his time in the business. He's the author of Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. He serves now as a senior policy advisor to Giffords. He has a TEDx talk up on the web, which I'll try and get a link to. And as well, he was on The Daily Show, which I'm jealous of, uh, just last December, which I'll also try to get a post up. Um, so we're going to talk about, I, I guess, I guess we'll kind of get right into it. Ryan, so much. Thanks for joining us, man. Hey, um, really appreciate being here, Fred. And, um, as you know, I think this issue, a lot of people think that this is just the gun issue and that's important enough and sometimes bad enough, sometimes good enough, whatever that is. But I actually think that this issue is tied into every other um, any other thing, if you care about anything in the United States, you better care about the gun issue because everything that we um, talk about, worry about is wrapped around the radicalization of NRA-ism. And um, so if it's climate or reproductive rights or, you know, whatever it is, um, I think it all I think it all boils down to this. Well, that's the thing. I, I think, I've, you know, I've seen you speak a couple of times now and I, I've, I'm a follower, I'm an avid follower on Twitter. And, I, and what I've really enjoyed talking about, it, it is unusual. What you do, what you say differently and, and, and relates to this show, this show being about democracy, is you've talked about that that larger 
radicalization of our politics and our society and tied to the proliferation of guns and radicalization in the firearms industry. And you've, you've several times tied them. And I think your book, you tie those moments to each other that as the, uh, as the growth of the ARs and the growth of these assault weapons, the, the tacticalization, if you will, of the industry grew, it was tied into the same parallel track of radicalization in our society of, as you've talked about, and I saw myself in Richmond, Virginia, people with guns showing up a peaceful protest, right? So, so tell me about that. How, how do you think we got here and, and those parallel tracks and what does that mean? Well, yeah, and I'll, I'll say first off, um, if you doubt any of this, if everybody could just think back to how they envisioned the time frame they envisioned for how America became kind of divided and radicalized politically. And I think it's pretty tough to get away from that. It kind of started right after um, in the midterms of Bill Clinton's presidency. So, you know, two th- or 1994-ish, 95-ish in there, because mm-hmm. Newt Gingrich is the, major- is the minority leader then. Then it really ramps up um, in the early 2000s, starts to take shape, but really, really starts to take shape as President Barack Obama starts to lead in the polls in 2007 and then was elected in 2008. And since then, it's been on a very steep upward curve and then or graph, you know, and here we are today. And if you, funny enough, if you go and lay um, gun sales over that exact same time frame, yep, the story is exactly the same with the gun sales data. And so, as I was living my life and putting this together, I began thinking, like, look, I'm I'm living a life in the gun industry, yes, um, with all of the things that Im- guns impact, yes, but this is a much larger thing. This the, the politics and the division and the radicalization and the way the NRA perfected harnessing fear and hatred to gin up, to, as I say in the book, to pressurize our political system. Um, I hope I make a pretty good case in the book, but I think, you know, my thesis is that, that we live in this NRA world now. Wow. And and I think, and, and that's something we talk about a lot, right? and, and a lot of us talk about the NRA, but in many ways, don't you think, I, I mean, I've sort of seen the NRA in many ways, you know, they, they're under fire uh, from the IRS, you know, from New York and where else, um, but really it's just the whole industry now. I mean, as you said, I mean, how many, how many companies now make AR versions? Was it 300? Well, there's, so in 2000, prior to 2006, there were just a couple companies, maybe three or four making AR-15s. They're mostly outliers that made guns for law enforcement and military. Right. Today, best estimate is there's 500 or so Jesus. that make AR, either the finished rifles or all the parts and accessories that go on the rifles. And then there's about another three or 400 that make um, tactical gear, bulletproof vest, the stuff that you saw, the Buffalo shooter where who was obviously radicalized politically, and his manifesto speaks directly about him looking through firearms and tactical gear advertisements. And so, I mean, it's not something I would wish upon anybody, but if you read his manifesto, like, it just reads like proof of firearms and firearms advertising being at the very heart of our radicalization. Right, and it goes right to that, right? As 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 the, I think we both were shocked by the ad talking about getting your man card back, or or the ads that very directly target specific. There's ARs with uh, Bible quotes on them now. There's ARs specifically designed for the called the Urban Sniper. I mean, it, it is it is. It, it, and I'm a soldier. I, you know, I carried a, a, an M4 
uh, in Iraq. I, I carried a, you know, pistols. You know, I, I've, I've fired these weapons for my entire adult life. I owned I, at one point. I did own my own AR-15. Which, interestingly enough, so you mentioned the book, the growth, uh, and your and your op-ed today in the Atlantic, by the way, which I thought was terrific um, about uh, you know many of these returning soldiers like myself wanted the weapons. We went to war. That literally was the, the impetus for me to get one of the weapons. Was yeah. it was like the weapon I carried, and so. That tacticalization uh, and that that the, the the desire for civilians to so sort of cosplay uh, and uh, has really driven a growth industry, but it is not a sporting weapon. I think I think you talk about that branding. I mean, how much of this branding of a weapon of war is 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 really the underlying thing here? Well, that's where it all starts, right? Um, because the the AR itself is still has been and as and has always been branded as essentially a way for you to become a military badass without having to go into the military. Um, right. like it, and, in, and the gun that was used by the Uvalde shooter, not only is it a, a badass military gun, it's a $2,000 gun. In most important ways, it far exceeds the quality of anything that the U.S. military is carrying. In other words, that 18-year-old kid had a way better gun, a way more effective gun than the U.S. military carries. And if you're a kid a radical that you know the buffalo shooter that somebody who wants to solve problems very quickly a political radical filled with hate and you are given an instrument that is more effective than those given to our military soldiers like it's a pretty alluring thing you can i mean who doesn't want to jump in front of the line and fix all your problems in a hurry well right if you have very dark problems and and all kinds of issues th- this this is what we have unleashed on our society right and and it does feel that way. I mean, we we joke. I, mean, I used to go to the range, and you would see these young men just tricked out with, you know, again, of course, the black rifle coffee gear and, and the tactical gear and these ridiculous helmets. And then you realize that not one of them had served, right? Not one of them had actually stepped up to the real service, but they were they were very much in awe of that or, or trying to cosplay it. But then so I think a very know. very important quote, um, and I'm a. I'm a huge critic of Black Rifle Coffee, not yeah. because I give a dang about the quality of the coffee. I don't. Yeah. But um, they are normalizing this tactical culture, culture in a very and glorifying it in a very dangerous way. And Matt Bast, who's one of the co-founders of Black Rifle Coffee, was asked, like, who in, in this is in 2019 yeah. Washington Post article, and he's asked, like, who are these people? Who who owns all these rifles? Like, who thinks that they have to have Black Rifle Coffee instead of Starbucks? Like, what what kind of people are those? And his quote is this. There are people who couldn't serve for whatever reason, but they still want to grab their AR-15 and run down the range and do a fucking transition drill, a little taste of the drug, you know. Hmm. You see, and, and there you have it, right? Right. As you just described, they're all, and I in the book, I call them couch commandos because that's right. what the industry referred to them as pejoratively, like, oh, we're selling all these guns to couch commandos. Well, hmm. that's who they are. Hmm. What changed, Ryan? I mean, I, I have seen you talk a number of times, and you talk about – how the industry, how in the old days when you were first in it, they 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 didn't have tactical gear at their gun shows. I went to gun shows. So on the so you know a little background on me. I'm the son of a World War II Marine. My dad was a lifetime member of the NRA. Uh, he taught me to fire weapons and respect weapons at a very young age. One of my earliest memories. My my dad had a cute little World War II Marine trick where we went to a quarry. I live in St. Louis now, and there's a quarry in St. Louis. I don't think it's open anymore, but we would actually go shoot. You know, back in the day, just go down this quarry and shoot. And my father had a cute trick where he would place one us or me on a boulder, and then he gave me his three fifty seven Magnum, if you know those old cannons. Yeah. And and he stood behind me as I sat, and they just had me shoot it. And literally, it threw me off the rock, and my dad caught me. 
and said, now do you understand how dangerous this is? <laughs> and that was his way of saying, this is not a toy. You will not play with this toy. It's going to be locked up on our house. But if you ever get your hands on it, you need to understand it's not a toy. And 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 frankly, he was horrified by the direction the NRA took uh, after the Charlton Heston and you know from my cold dead hands. So at what point did this industry change? And and was there a conscious decision? Did you, did you see that change? And or was it quick? Was it slow? Or was it a sudden decision to, to embrace this culture? It was a few quick things that resulted in slow action, um, and then really sped up. So, and you by should be that, a PR I mean, guy, Ryan. I know, I know. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, speaking, I'm speaking like my like I have my warm shawl on right there now. There you go. Um, um, but uh, what happened after after uh, Columbine? We now know that there were secret leadership meetings held because they were taped by someone, and NPR, funny enough, got a hold of them. And in those meetings, Heston. Um, and, and several other, well, LaPierre, um, Jim mm-hmm. Baker, several people, leaders of the NRA, are debating, well, should we be conciliatory and be a part of the solution? Or is there an opportunity here for us to say, hell no, scare people into thinking that people are going to steal their guns? Maybe this shooting thing and the reaction can actually be a plus. And they picked the latter. Okay. Now, in that meeting, they actually said, Baker says in that meeting, don't worry. The industry will go along with whatever we do. And you know what? Jim Baker was exactly right because there was no disconnect between the NRA and the industry. The industry did do exactly what the NRA wanted. Why? Because the same exact things that drove the NRA's desired political outcomes, meaning short-term electoral wins, so you needed hate, pressure, conspiracy, fear. Those are the things that drove the outcomes from the NRA. Surprisingly, Those are exactly the same things that drove gun sales. And if you need any proof of that, think back to the worst, most tumultuous time any of us have lived in our last, you know, in the last 40 years. That was the time between January 1st, 2020 and January 7th, 2021. In that 12 month period, you had COVID, lockdowns, George Floyd, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, protests, counter protests, people in the street, National Guard, Donald Trump pouring fuel on, like the worst, right? Right. Well, that corresponds perfectly with the highest gun sales ever in the history of the United States by a big margin. So I don't know how much more proof you need. Guns are right. at the very center of her radicalization. Right. You know, and I saw it. So I lived in Richmond, Virginia during the BLM, uh, you know, marches. And, and of course, Richmond is the center of a lot of it with the Confederate monuments, of course, and the Lee monument there in the middle of town. And I used to walk my dog up the hill. I lived, I lived just below Libby Hill. Uh, there's a famous monument at the top of Libby Hill. It was one of the Confederate monuments. It was a beautiful monument, but it was dedicated to Confederate soldiers. And it had gotten tagged uh, in, 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 the, in, the, in the demonstrations with graffiti. And one day I walked up there, and there was this group of, of, of people pressure washing it illegally because they weren't allowed to. But they had a circle of, of men, uh, very country redneck type of dudes, uh, armed to the teeth with pistols and ARs guarding them and, and, yep. and waving us away. Like, and... and and me being me, I I wasn't I took pictures of him to his face and called the cops. But but it's just that that intimidation. There there just seems to be more and more of this of this intimidation. I actually know if you if you may remember, there was a guy, one of the guys who started this open carry movement of carrying long guns around the neighborhood uh, was actually a veteran um, in the in the in the, in the 2012 2013 range. And remember, I don't know if you remember, there was an incident in Texas where he got he got tackled by a cop because he was walking on the street with a long gun, and they discovered it was perfectly legal. And he's been a big 
big part of the long gun movement and the open carry movement. Yeah. So that has been driven by veterans and driven by these radicals. Uh, you talked about that. You talk about that armed intimidation. I mean, how uh, is there? I mean, I haven't seen a lot of talk with the idea of outlawing that. Is, is there any hope of that at this point? Well, there. I wish this was front and center in our national legislation because yeah. I think that this cultural shift is it, look. All the things, all the spillover effects from this radicalization with guns, including the spillover of way too many illicit handguns into places like Chicago, and obviously the horrific shootings that we've seen in Buffalo and Uvalde, right? Those are, those are terrible, and I don't mean to minimize them. Yeah. But I'm also, and to the point of your podcast, I'm exceedingly worried, and I write about this in my book, that guns and gun rights and gun radicalization may be the thing that, that undoes the democracy. And I think it's critical to note that on January 6th, there were two types of flags. There were Trump and political flags, and then there were come and take an AR-15 flags, right? There could have been Chevy truck flags, could have been Nike right. shoe flags, right. could have been barbecue grill flags. There weren't. There were AR-15 flags. Why? Because every single domestic terrorist organization that you can name right now, Proud Boys, Three Percenters, Oath Keepers, everyone claims gun radicalization as its central organizing principle. I mean, I, I don't know what else we need to, to say. Right, right. I mean, that's the thing. It is, it is a part of all of it. It is a part of the politics we see. You know, I'm a political consultant. And, and again, it's every one of my opponents in the, in the, in the Republican field are obsessed with it, obsessed with more laws, loosening them up. I live in Missouri where they basically outlawed just even like cooperating with the military. I mean, we talk quite a bit. They ended up defunding the police in Missouri because they, they outlawed the ability for police to coordinate with the federal government on gun task forces, which ended up cutting the budgets of a lot of police departments because they were getting money from these federal task forces. This obsession with increasing our access to guns has tied to the success of the industry, right? Uh, and, 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 and then, of course, the, 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 this radical streak within our own politics. Um, it's almost, it's disheartening, right? I mean, where do we go, right? How do we, how do we beat that? I mean, so, and that line, I mean, that goes to what you talk about a lot that responsibility of our society that that we that the part of a society the part of the you know people put too often talk about what the law allows and other things but in the end you know we have a how does the gun culture fit into this this increasing coarseness of our responsibility and and the lack of responsibility towards our society we see on a daily basis well i think it's i mean i think it's absolutely central and and the the analogy i use um and I use this in my TED talk, right? But if you if you think about what radicals try to do to a civil government, to a complex democracy like ours, think of it this way: like there's some of you, your friends, you're you're sitting at dinner, you're waiting on on a guest to show up, you have some wine, some political discussion, it maybe gets raucous, but you have this, these rules of civility where you know nobody jumps over the table with a fork, right? Right. And then, well, and then I don't your know. Friend, my, my my girlfriend gets pretty crazy. Okay, sometimes, okay, yeah. okay. But most times, most of them. And then, <laughs> then your friend shows up, the last person shows up, and that person has an AR-15, 30-round magazine, loaded, ready to rock, sets down at the table, finger on the trigger, and it's over, right? The only right. opinion matters now is that person's opinion. And if you th mm. and your civility is gone, your rules are gone, the room's quiet, like, oh, shit, listen to this guy. And that's what these radicals are trying to do to our democracy. Forget about the hard work of gaining support. Forget about the civil rules. Forget about votes. Forget about election laws. Like they just want to jump in front of the line with power and intimidation. And nothing does that like a loaded gun. Right. I mean, that, and that goes to those pictures of men with long guns uh, going to Starbucks for the pandemic, right? Yep. It is yep. a way, it's, it's, it's a way, a very intimidating way to state their position and, and, and you're right, dominate a conversation and dominate, you know, who we are as a society. It's, it's, really and, and democracy 
cannot happen at the barrel of a gun. Just try it. Have somebody walk in the room and ask you to try to make a decent decision with a loaded gun to your head. Like, dude, you can't do it. Um, and neither can the democracy. It's, it's, I mean, these people that invaded the Michigan Capitol, these screaming idiots with loaded AR-15s, like democracy cannot happen that way. Right. Right. And that is the fear. And, and, and it only gets worse. So having said that, um, we are in the moment, as I mentioned at the top of the show, um, where there is an attempt being made. There, the, Uvalde seems to have probably hopefully struck a nerve. 19 fourth graders horribly murdered. Um, rumor, word of them being decapitated. Because the, the, the horrors of the weapon. I had a guest on the podcast about on Memorial Day weekend, a good friend of mine, Dan Barkoff, who is a former Navy SEAL, but also an emergency room doctor, Harvard, Harvard trained emergency room doctor. And, and Dan talked a great length about what the, the damage of what the velocity of a bullet coming out of an AR does to the human body. And they're designed that way to tumble and destroy. Uh, and so it has been a problem. It, it's, we recognize that. So you've all been really tripped it. So now we've got these 10 uh, senators from each party, 20 senators who have built a framework of. So the elements that, as I see them, are they, uh, they are going to, they say they support, uh, support, support for red flag laws and interventions at the state level, meaning funding for those. Uh, two, uh, enhanced review for buyers under 21. I'd love to know what that means. Um, penalties for straw purchases. Uh, mental health and telehealth services support. Um, they're going to clarify what is a licensed dealer. Um, they are going the boyfriend loophole, which is protections for domestic violence victims. Uh, and then finally, to support for school in school mental health services and support for school safety support services and gun prevention or gun violence prevention measures. Um, you know, those don't touch on very popular things, right? We're not talking about universal background checks. We're not talking about any kind of limits on the AR-15 in any way, shape, or form. But I, but the gun, I mean, I know you're an advocate, you're, you work with Giffords. It does seem like our gun advocates from Moms Demand and others are hailing this as progress. Where do you see this, Ryan? Well, it is progress because, I mean, we, have, we haven't we have even got 10 senators from opposite parties to talk about. I mean, shit, I'm not sure they could, could, could agree on whether ice cream is a good thing or not. Right. So at least, right. like, this is progress in that way. Um, is it enough to roll back to change all of the um, properly enumerated um, immense problems that, that you have noted? No. Um, but I like to remind people, like, it took 30 plus years for us to get into this kind of situation. And there wasn't one thing that put us in a situation, nor is there one thing that's going to get us out. And I think responsibility and norms in a society are built up over time. Um, one important example I like to point out is that contrary to popular belief, the AR-15 was never outlawed by the assault weapons ban. It wasn't. Right. I mean, people think it was, but it was not. Right. Um, it, it, if you added more features onto it and it became a quote-unquote assault weapon, it was. But you could buy plenty. In fact, the Buffalo shooter used a post-ban, a gun that was built during the assault weapons ban. That's what he used to commit the murders in wow. Buffalo. Wow. So um, the point there is that the assault weapons ban perhaps more than legal, was a social norm reinforcer. And so I think um, us doing whatever it takes, little by little, piece by piece, to put those norms back together is really important. And so in that way, I think there's good stuff in this bill. Right, right. Right. And and it does seem there's support building. I did see a report today um, that, of course, 
there's there's grumpiness about the cost of you know finding the money to support the uh, the red flag laws. Of course, Josh Hawley, our Missouri senator, was on there uh, on TV complaining about the idea of any kind of red flag law. They feel like it's you know people's <laughs> taken away. And what I sound striking about his comment was he said this is going to take away the rights of law-abiding citizens, take away their guns. But that's the whole point of a red flag law that they're not law-abiding; they're domestic domestic violence. Uh, perpetrators, right? I mean, it, the red flag laws prevents that from happening, correct? Yeah, it, they have done something, or uh, you know, as the, as the name says, as the moniker says, they've sent up a flag, right? They've right. done something. They created, they threatened somebody, um, they did something, and you know, I'm sorry, you're saddled with Holly. Um, I don't have <laughs> enough four letter words to 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 give you everything that I think no, of, the, of the guy. We've all um, used him, <laughs> but but um, what in a civil society? What thing is it that we do where law-abiding citizens aren't inconvenienced to some degree when we have to enforce laws? I mean, look, I think I could drive across town at 90 miles an hour in my truck and probably never kill anybody and go through the school zone. But I don't do it because I don't want to run over kids. Is it an inconvenience for me to slow down to 25? Well, kind of, I guess. Is that is that a law-abiding citizen kind of being, you know, inconvenienced for slowing down? As we, Yes, but... I don't want to live in anarchy and I prefer live kids over dead ones. I mean, come on. Right. Right. And that's, and that's exactly what we talk about, right? It is this, this constant harping on the second amendment, you know, shall not be abridged. <laughs> and, and of course we, we know better. I, I, I met a, a guy named Shan, uh, Shan Wu, who is a legal analyst for the CNN. I had dinner with him last night and, and Shan, I, I posted it. I, I'll have to post it later, but Shan had a great piece where he did an analysis of the, you know, the second amendment. He talks about how the second amendment was created, um, you know, during, during the early, you know, when they were trying to get the constitution passed, uh, and there was concerns in the South that, that the, inter- the intricate nature of how the Second Amendment is tied directly to slavery, being that the Southern states were concerned that the federal government would control their militias that they used to hunt down uh, runaway slaves and to uh, quell slave rebellions. And so the Southern states demanded, George Mason specifically, that the Second Amendment exists, uh, the whole militia thing. It wasn't meant as an individual rights or to, quote, fight tyranny, unless you want to be a rebellion. It was a pretty, he makes a compelling case, and I'm seeing more scholarship on that, that the Second Amendment was never about individual rights per se. It was about, the, uh, sadly, uh, perpetuating the slavery. Um, it, it, we have lost sight of that, right? We have lost sight of what the Second Amendment means, and it's become this unabridgeable thing. But like you said, right, we abridge a lot of things, right? You you abridge my right to own a car by mandatory insurance, mandatory inspections, uh, a driver's license to drive it. Why do you think there is such um, is it, actually, I think I know the answer, right? We're going to go back to the NRA. We're going to go back to the gun industry, right? The, the fight to not make sure there's no abridgment, right? Um, I also don't understand. Do you think that there's, at what point is it self-defeating? I guess is what I'm trying to get to it. At what point is the industry going to defeat themselves? Uh, and is it even possible? Is a Rubicon to be crossed at some point where there's a realization within the industry that they've actually shot themselves? I think, yeah. So, you know, Rubicon, jump the shark, whatever, whatever the right. hell analogy you know we're going to use here. I thought we've approached that a couple times. I'm pretty sure, maybe we have or we will. And it's interesting you say that because I try to I coach people who are trying to responsible gun owners who are calling me and writing me, um, organizations like Gifford to them, advising about how to talk about this, and I tell them you need to get to the right of all of these um, crazy gun groups. And they kind of look at me with their eye cocked like, dude, come on. Are you serious? How is that possible? I said, no, no, hear me out. 
you are more pro-gun than these people are. Why? Because you will do what is necessary in a complex society to maintain rights. And that means you have to impose some legislation and responsibility. So kind of to your point, Fred, like, do is this a circle that is, is going to come around and bite people in the ass? I think it already is. Right. Like the most the most anti-gun thing you can do is is to let this thing get so out of control that the societal whiplash is so extreme that you do lose some rights. I mean, I use right. the analogy like, um, um, you know, kids cleaning their room, like, you know, my kid, Lander, Lander, go clean your room. No, go clean your room. No. And then about the fourth time, like, OK, I'm coming down there with you. Like, you should have cleaned the room before I came down there with you. Um, and because that's going to get ugly now. And I think that's exactly what we're going to face here. Um, this a society like this cannot continue to exist watching 19 little kids getting shot like this. It just is. It's 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 just not sustainable. Right. Right. And it's, that's, that's, and that's so much that, that gets right to it. I mean, it, it is, and that's something. So in my fight, you know, as I, as I push back against legislators and as I push back on Twitter and elsewhere where I have a chance to speak, I keep saying that just keep reminding the 19 fourth graders, 19 10 year old kids were horrible, were slaughtered in minutes. Um, and, and if you can walk away from that, if you can walk away from the knowledge that, parents had to submit DNA, or as Matthew McConaughey so brilliantly laid out that identifying the young girl by her green, I get upset, green sneakers with the heart on them. Yeah. Um, if you as a human, and, 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 and more shockingly, many who claim to be Christians can accept the slaughter of our children, then, then what else will you accept? I mean, it, it is a, it's a scary question that we have leaders and legislators that are more worried about um, fundraising or next election than the murder of children. Well, and I think this goes to the very heart of GOP politics and the radicalized nature in which the Republican Party now exists. The reason that that this issue is so hard, like you've probably heard it a billion times. I've heard it like background checks pull at 82 percent or 85 or whatever. And right. Nothing pulls that high. Why can't we get that done? That should be so easy. And people scratch their heads. Right. And I'm right. sure lots of political consultants have and they've given bad advice on this. Hmm. But and so it, in a lot of ways, it looks like it's a little pebble that you ought to be able to just bend down and pick up and toss over the fence. But when you reach down and grab it, it's attached to this monstrous, huge mountain-sized boulder. And that boulder is the very nature of the GOP. In other words, this intimidation, um, you know, power, fundraising, hell no to everything, everything that the NRA has created – actually is the GOP now. So right. when you go to attack the tiniest little thing of it that looks common sense to everybody, even Republicans say yes on this in, in some polls, um, and you, ought, you say you ought to be able to pass it, you can't pass it and you can't attack it, and it's so hard because it's so much bigger than what it first appears. Mm. Wow. That is such a great – I really like that analogy because it is tied to these other things. Uh, today, uh, the word came out of the caucus meeting, the Senate caucus – uh, that Kramer, uh, Senator Kramer from, I, want, I believe he's South Dakota. I want to, I, I North Dakota. Me. North Dakota, thank you. Uh, that's right. That's your, your your neck of the woods. You know, he said, well, I'm not worried about, you know, he, he's more worried about a red wave than he has red flags. Um, and it's such a, a simple sentence that gets to the, the, the crux of the matter, right? That that these these gentlemen are more worried about taking over the country and holding holding their feet to the fire of the culture wars than they are the actual safety of the society they're supposed to govern. Um, and so we're ungoverned at this point. And that, on that ungoverned space is ripe fodder and a, a, a ripe environment, if you will, a fertile environment for acquisition of people with guns. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And, that's, I mean, I, I really believe this is at the core of it. And, and, and that's why I tell people like, I, you know, I'm a climate activist. I'm an environmentalist. I'm deeply worried about our, our climate future. Um, there's lots of other issues I'm worried about. I'm worried most about this gun thing, because I think if we don't fix that, none of that shit's going to matter. Right. Well, that's the thing. I mean, we're getting to a point where, look, you know, we had an actual insurrection. Um, they, we now know that Oath Keepers and, and, and Proud Boys had weapons stashes across the state lines in Virginia. But by the way, if laws don't work, how come the weapons were stuck in Virginia, not in Washington, D.C.? But that's another thing. <laughs> right. Another, another point on that, like when these people say all the time, like laws don't work, you know, only criminals. Like, OK, hold right. on. In both cases, the Buffalo and the Uvalde case. The kids waited until they were 18 to get the guns. Why didn't they get them when they were 17 and a half, 17 and three quarters, 17, 351 days? And they didn't. They waited until they were 18. Why? Because the law said they had to wait till they were 18. So don't right. give me this bunk that laws don't matter. If, the, if those kids didn't worry about the laws, they could have got them a year ago or two years ago. They didn't. Right. Right, because they're not criminals; they're just they're kids bent on something. And then, and then we haven't even touched on you know the suit. Now, AR is not the preference for choice, but but you know I'm a veteran. Um, we are we are haunted by a scourge of suicide in our community, the veteran community, and we do know that some seventy to seventy five percent of all suicides for veterans and military members are done by firearm. Firearms are the number one um, a tool used for committing suicide. They're a very, very effective tool for suicide, and it works. But we also know because I, I worked with Brady campaign. Um, pre, in a previous life, and and we know that there's study after study shows that the weapons locked up, if the ammunition is separate, that it does divert that suicide ideation in 50 percent of the time. So we are kind of begging for safety. We're begging to save lives, uh, but we're running up against um, a, a party that's not interested in any of that. They're really interested in more power. Um, and at some point, the leopard's going to eat their face. You know, I mean, I think that's. Uh, you know, well, I think it's so sad to know that we have half of our political universe, like they're living in this quarterly capitalist world, right? And by that, I mean, in, in yeah. quarterly capitalism, all you care about is the next quarter. Like you will right. sell your grandmother down the river to make the next quarter. You'll worry about, I mean, you, you really don't care about what happens the day after that. You're just trying to get your bonus check and get on to the next thing. And that's what that's what the Republican Party and that's what the NRA started. Right. They said, look, we will do anything, say anything, throw anybody under the bus, lie about anybody, whatever it takes to win the next election. Forget about where the country burns down. OK, well, maybe the country, maybe it sustains that once or twice. But now we have an entire party who has taken on that NRA mantra and they're willing to do that literally every single election. Like, burn it down. We don't care whatever it takes to win the next election. Well, like two, three, four elections, as you see now. Like, I'm sorry, but it feels pretty tenuous to me. Yep, that's exactly it. And and I, I really love that analogy. It is so. It, it, it takes people who've been in industry in the corporate world to understand it, that it is that quarterly mentality. It's always about the next election. It's always a calculus, a calculus for the next election. And and that that calculus leaves us the problem where no one's trying to solve long-term problems. No, and, and you know, and the, and the model of this country is, you know, the whole point of having senators serve six years was to allow them to be able to do the good things, the necessary long-term things, because they didn't face election for six years. But now it's always every election every two years, uh, and, and every election matters now because we're trying to say, you know, and so, so that calculus has gone out the window as well. The framers just never saw this coming, but you're right. It is a cold calculus 
that every single election has to be won uh, and has to be won handily so they can maintain and, and maintain a firm grip on power and we pay a price. And a long-term problem like the violence in our society uh, is being kicked down the road uh, and I just, I spend a lot of my time these days asking how far, at what point does the can no longer go down the road and ends up, you know, cutting all of our feet and... and or or now, it Fred, it's not only is it kicked down the road, it's worsened. Like, right. And, and by that, I mean, it's it's to Trump's political advantage. I'll pick on him because he's not in office, right? Yep. But it's to his political advantage to have more violence, to have more fear, to have more angst, to have more conspiracy, to have more race, racial tension, right? That drives his political outcomes. Yep. And that's that's where I got in the industry. I'm like, wait just a second, guys. Like, I know you sell more guns and everybody hates each other, but like, this is not good. You know, I mean, right. it's not good for the country. We have to step back. It's, I mean, the industry would like to have, you know, in, in essence, right, we go back to that quarterly capitalism thing. Like, it's better if every single person was armed all the time. And not only that, maybe they could be armed with two guns all the time, open carry. I'm like, well, okay, good for business, but shit, that sounds very bad for the country, you know? Well, I, I served in Iraq, okay? I did three tours in Iraq. Uh, I served in Baghdad at the height of the insurgency there. Uh, and you're right. And, and armed society is not a safer society. <laughs> the idea that anyone, anyone who ever served in combat, especially, and, and doesn't understand that when everybody's got guns, a lot of people die. Um, because what, what, what used to be, I used, I say it a lot when I talk, what used to be fuck you, fuck you, bump chest, walk away is now fuck you, boom. Yeah. Um, people die. Yeah. Um, yeah. God is really acceptable. How many road rage incidents now end in gunfire? Um, you know, these insane videos you see of guys shooting through their own effing windshields because they're too stupid to understand what they're doing because a simple thing ends up in gunfire because we are armed to the teeth, uh, and, and, and people are angry and they're solving their problems with gunfire. Um, I, again, I always get stuck and I, and I'm supposed to be a political guy myself. I keep getting stuck on that same thing. What is it going to take? to wake this up. What, what do you think, what is a, a progress that can be made, right? I mean, you've, you've been in the industry, so let, let's talk about that. So you've been in Well, industry. I can tell you one thing that would fix it, but I don't think this is possible. I think more than anything, and I didn't really realize when I was in the industry how important this was, I do now, because I see this growing irresponsible marketing that we've talked about some, the urban super right. sniper, all, the, all these things that now encourage so much irresponsible activity. A lot of that is based and protected by PLACA, and that's the law that was signed into law by Bush in 2005, in October 2005. PLACA is the Protection and Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. That is a liability shield for the firearms industry. Right. Even if you market irresponsibly, you cannot be held liable. And if I think of it like this, it's sort of like a frat party. Like, you show up, like, hey, hey, there's 50 frat guys. Like, here's some Coke. Here's a bunch of kegs. Um Tell you, um, call the hookers, do whatever. I'm sure you won't do anything bad. Um, see you in a couple months. Like right. that, that you know, you can't get caught. Nobody's going to call the cops. You can't get in trouble. I'm sure you guys will be good, right? Right. Uh, no, they're not going to be good. Right. And that liability shield is now protecting people like Daniel Defense, who has a toddler sitting on the floor with the AR-15 and the Bible verse, right? Because right. there is no repercussion for irresponsibility. And I get back to the program thing. Why would any pro-gun person, I am a pro-gun person, I own lots of guns, my kids shoot with me all the time, I'm proud of that. Why would I want to let somebody like that be the face of responsible gun ownership? I don't. And why would the industry want that? They shouldn't. So that law, if it were undone or repealed, I think stuff would whip into shape pretty quick because the old U.S. legal system and enterprising attorneys – 
would find people like Marty Daniel and they would say, okay, dude, we're holding you to account. And then the next company wouldn't do it. Right. Well, I, what I hear is the money. So again, I think it comes down to money, right? We have to find a way for there to be a monetary cost to the industry that their profits get blown up um, to, to, to stop this. That's what, that's what I keep hearing. So we're, we're being again. It's funny how much of this goes back to money, right? I mean, it goes back to money. It goes money in politics and money in the industry. We find out that Daniel Defense illegally donated to a political campaign uh, a pack to support um, to support the Georgia Senate runoffs, right? So money, 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 money is the key. So maybe that's it. I mean, uh, I think you, did you mention, I think one of your interviews, and you'll forgive me, I'm, I'm so crazy, but you did talk about the tobacco industry, right? We, yeah. We did put I think of the tobacco leaders. industry, right? Like we didn't, <laughs> and this slippery slope crap I always hear from gun people. Like, right. Okay, if, if we agree to background checks, then like by tomorrow, they'll take every gun. Like, yeah. come on. Um, we t- Look at tobacco. We didn't outlaw the right or the ability or the freedom to go smoke cigarettes. You can still do it. Right. Um, we didn't t- we didn't wipe out lung cancer and emphysema. Um, you can still catch it if you want to. Um, what we did 18 years ago was say, look, we're going to ratchet back some of the irresponsible marketing. We're going to distribute some of the profits. So we take care of some of the impacts. And we did what you do in a in a complex democracy. We made things marginally better. Did we make them perfect? No. But we stopped making them worse. And that, that, that's a very good model here. I'm I'm not advocating tape, taking people's guns. I'm not take, talking about wiping gun ownership from from America. But I am talking about doing things that make things marginally better because we have to live in a society. I mean, we care about those kids walking across a crosswalk when we are talking about speed limits. We need to start worrying about them being in the schools. Right? We don't drive 25 mi- or 50 mile an hour, 90 mile an hour through the crosswalk. We need to start worrying about what they're if they're safe inside those schools too. Right. Or going to the grocery store or going to a music festival or going to a nightclub. Um, I mean, this is where the slaughter is occurring. And, and yeah. so I feel like what I deal with a lot in politics is the, what I, the called the three C's of the Republican party, you know, deceive, divert, and divide. Right. Yeah. And, and they divert our attention by with the school safety stuff. Right. Well, we just got a lot of schools. And, and I find it telling that the NRA themselves have been proponents of school safety measures, right? Oh, here they, they have a school safety program of how to like lock your fucking school up. Uh, instead of actually controlling guns, I mean, I, I, I think you're right, right? It's like we could, this is not a society, uh, a society that has to have armed guards and and and, and one entrance schools and create prisons for our kids, is not a future um, no. for our society. Uh, so no. I do, I, I agree. I think you're right. That it's the marginal changes. I, I'm, I am cautiously optimistic that the Senate's going to do something good for a change. I, I am, I'm a cynic at this point, unfortunately, on this on this topic because we've been saying this. We've buried so many of our fellow Americans. We've buried so many kids. Um, at, at some point, if the bloodshed doesn't wake them up, I'm not sure what we'll do. And it's going to be it's going to be ugly for everybody. But I, I really like what you, I like your thematic. I like what you say about the relaxation of the industry goes to the realization of our society. I think it's tied together. So. So I, I think this has been a great conversation, right? I can't, I can't, you know, this is, this is terrific. Um, any final things you want, you should, we should think about as we, as we, as we, as we look at the next few days or just in general, as we as, as concerned Americans and, and who love our country should think about. Well, the last thing I'll say, I guess, I mean, yeah, we're going to see interesting political things. We're probably going to see a Supreme Court case in the next week that um, makes some of this stuff harder. But I think, I guess I would call on all people. You live in Missouri. I live in Montana. Um, People listening live in similar places where there's lots of gun owners, and I'm one. And we probably all know people that fit into this radicalized um, gun culture that we've discussed or that mm-hmm. are dangerously close to it. 
Yeah. And I think we've all looked away from it. We've, you know, we've had Thanksgiving dinners with people where our crazy uncle says something about taking out Joe Biden with his AR-15, you know, whatever. We, we've heard it and we've like, oh, I just don't want to talk about it. I just like, let's let it go. That shit's got to stop. Good people have got to stand up and castigate this stuff and put it at least put it back in the closet where it belongs. It can't be out in the open like this because it gives license to too many people. It endangers our democracy. It, it lets kids think that they can solve their problems by buying an AR and run into a grocery store in, Bold, or in, in Buffalo. Like we, we, we've got to put it back in the can. And that means every single one of us has to do the hard work of standing up to people in our social circle when they do or say these things. I love it, and it, and I am that guy. I, my, I, I have a, I have a, 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 a sibling who I care deeply about, who's who collects a lot of weapons and, and is very much part of that culture. And it's, it's been a challenge for a guy who, me, who actually served and carried these weapons. Um, and it's a change. So with that, how can we find you online, uh, Ryan? Um, where, I'm at where are we uh, Ryan Bussey, B-U-S-S-E, author, ryanbusseyauthor.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I write a lot. I wrote a piece for The Atlantic today, and Saw that. I'm always commenting on this stuff. And you can find me at Ryan D. Bussey um, on Twitter. And um, as thank you so much, Fred, for your work and for this opportunity to chat and for just caring about our country and doing the right thing. So we need more of it. Thank you. I really appreciate that, man. Congratulations on the book. I'm glad to see it's out and doing well. I've got my copy in the mail right now as we speak. And uh, as always, for, for our listeners, you can always find me on Twitter. I literally almost always find me on Twitter, <laughs> at FP Wellen. There's a Facebook page. There's an Instagram page out there. They're all good stuff. Uh, as always, uh, we really appreciate you joining us here on the call-in app. Tell your friends if you like the show. It'll publish to Apple and Spotify. I'd love you to subscribe on there so we get more subscribers and some good reviews. I'm always looking for reviews. I'm, I'm always desperate for positive attention. And for that, thank you so much for joining this episode of On Democracy. Uh, we'll return again later this week as the January 6th uh, hearings unfold and We'll discuss those as well. In the meantime, Ryan, thanks for joining us. Have a great day. Everyone, thanks for joining the show. Thank you so much. Have a great day.